0: Welcome to Coach House Talks. What if we focused on ourselves like we usually do in a world where God does not matter outside of the equation of the human experience and our journey to find contentedness in what little time we have in this world? Solomon is traditionally known as the author of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is Solomon's thoughts on the meaning of the human experience, exploring the more common motivations and problems of life outside of our dealings with God. Ecclesiastes is not a sermon um, on godly values or the gospel, it is an observation on universal human values an analysis of the values that society, even today, tells us gives our lives meaning. There are 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon spends the first seven of them saying rather challenging, if not outright offensive, observations, as if trying to provoke us, his readers. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, famously sets the tone. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. At first glance, anyone reading these words would take offense, or at least make some sort of excuse for Solomon, in that he did not mean what he just said. Since there are surely some things in this world that have some value... For Solomon, famously known to be the wisest and most successful king in Israel's history, cannot make a basic mistake in saying that all things are truly meaningless, since the reality is we do take pleasure in certain activities and items. However, we're not just talking about the simple pleasures of life, we're talking about contentedness and the meaning of life, which is on a slightly grander scale. When I was a teenager, I was very concerned about the meaning of life. Back in high school, in a situation similar to boarding school, I would climb out on the balcony of my dormitory um, to sit on the roofs at night. Just climbed out of a tree. Well, more of my window, that is. The other boys would join me to stare at the stars at night. Um, And by the time I was 16, I was despairing about my future because I realized that I was exceedingly average in most respects. In some uh, matters, I was a bit worse than average. Uh, My family background was poor, my studies were relatively good, and I had a very small group of friends, a very average boy. But when you were 16 years old and a boy now was very average, you start wondering what was the point of life. Um, I despaired at the thought of becoming a basic salary man, uh, working in a company for a nine to five job just to collect a paycheck, uh, to pay the bills, and to save up a little so that maybe I can make life a little easier for my relatives um, in need. At the age of 16, I thought about the cycle of life in all its uninteresting details. Um, An individual is born, struggles in life, attempts to gain education, finds a job, and secures a place in society for themselves. Maybe along the way, the individual gets caught up in some scattered, fragmented adventures in their lives. This may be taking part in some societal upheaval, Um, Or maybe it's struggling with inner demons, Um, I wouldn't know. But it can be the saga that leads up to marriage or buying a nice house with white picket fences. Um, But ultimately, your human experience ends with death. Disconnected from the world, it's all gone. And this story repeats again in the next generation. That was my interpretation of the cycle of life. With these thoughts in my head, the 16-year-old me was feeling pretty worthless in every sense of the word. I felt that all that made me a special individual would be stripped away within a few decades, and my life would soon be contained in this cycle of life, a standardization. When I was 17, I began writing several letters Uh, to my future self, that was, that were um, quite rude. The past me was already assuming that my future self, that is me right now, would be filled with existential dread and overwhelmed by society as a whole. And he was probably right. (laughs) I honestly am quite scared of cracking open these letters to read them a decade later, so I won't read any of them here. (laughs) But in summary, these letters always began with a few lines about needing to immediately stop feeling sorry for myself, to remind myself that I was always self-centered since childhood, and that if there was anything getting me down right now, it was probably because I was getting too prideful again. My past self was the type to say that if I really believed that I was a mediocre and unimportant person, then that was fine. Being a mediocre person had nothing to do with determining the meaning of life. A mediocre person who indulges in self-pity can only give a mediocre or pitiful reason as to why they do what they do. A hopeless society only passes on hopeless values. A dissatisfied and disappointing humanity will not be giving us an answer on how We can be satisfied with our human experience. My past self would say that this was shamelessly irrational and self-centered to think otherwise. It just doesn't make sense. I've grown a little older now, so we'll leave my past self behind and move on to Ecclesiastes. A lot of people think to break out of this cycle of life we must have money and accomplishments. We will focus on these two big topics today, since Ecclesiastes is full of topics to consider. Returning to Solomon, we must remember that he was the most extravagant king in Israel's history. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, we see a glimpse of his wealth. I'm just going to read it out now. Every year, King Solomon received over 25 tons of gold in addition to the taxes paid by the traders and merchants. The kings of Arabia and the governors of the Israelite districts also brought him silver and gold. Solomon made 200 large shields, each of which were covered with about 15 pounds of beaten gold and 300 smaller shields, each covered with eight pounds of beaten gold. He had them all placed in the hall of the forest of Lebanon the king also had a large throne made. Part of it was covered with ivory, and the rest of it was covered with pure gold. Six steps led up to the throne, and there was a footstool attached to it, covered with gold. There were arms on each side of the throne, and the figure of a lion stood at each side. Twelve figures of lions were on the steps, one on, each, on either end of each step. No throne like this has ever existed in any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were made out of gold, and all the utensils in the hall of the forest of Lebanon were made out of pure gold. Silver was not considered valuable in Solomon's day. He had a fleet of ocean-going ships sailing with King Hiram's fleet. Every three years, his fleet would return, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. To be clear, these 200 shields of gold were ornamental. They hung on the walls of Solomon's palace because he was wealthy enough to hang up blocks of gold around his home for all of Israel to see. There was no practical or cultural value to the shields. Only yet another display of the incredibly valuable materials that Solomon surrounded himself with. They could have been dedicated to God, but the Bible never said so. We can note that the golden shields were placed in Solomon's palace and not the temple, and Solomon spent 13 years building his palace when he only spent seven years building the temple. So let's be honest there. In any case, Solomon, as the author of Ecclesiastes, made a point in history to emphasize his status as the most accomplished king in Israel's history at the time. If there was anyone qualified to judge if a man could be content with the material pleasures of the world, it would be Solomon. This did not refer to just money, but every material indulgence. In his human experience to find contentedness, Solomon indulged in wine, wealth, and women. We need to be honest in our appraisal of Solomon. He was given wisdom by God, that is true, but he should not be your role model when it comes to talking about faithfulness to God. This was a man who let himself go, buying properties, building great landmarks, owning slaves and entertainers, detailing his indulgence in not just wealth, but material pleasures as a whole. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one to 11, Solomon writes, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But this also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people who do under the heavens during the last few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands have done and what I've toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In Solomon's indulgence, where he, fueled by unmatched wealth, genuinely reached the pinnacle of indulgence and experienced delight in accomplishments and material pleasures, Solomon still had his wisdom where he was able to judge whether or not he was being fulfilled. And by this wisdom, he honestly reflected and claimed that all his material accomplishments were meaningless. He did feel pleasure in his indulgence and delight at his accomplishments, but these feelings were not eternal. Everything he gained existed as temporary delight, a chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 to 23, had Solomon go on to think about the meaning of work itself. So I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I've toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether the person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I I poured my effort and skill into the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they owe to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving in which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work, is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest." This too is meaningless. Modern society today gives us powerful slogans on how work is meaningful in itself. We hear slogans like, my job gives me meaning. The sense of accomplishment is all that I need. Or perhaps, This is all I ever wanted to do as a kid. We're not here right now to demean anyone's job or work that feels meaningful. We are simply saying that in the scope of humanity under the sun, in a life that will not last, these feelings will come to an end. Solomon here is reflecting on his accomplishments, and he hated all that he has done because he despaired on how, in the limited view of human life, there were two undeniable reasons in the scope of human experience why his work was meaningless. The first is death would take all his accomplishments away, um, absolutely disconnecting him from his personal glory. The second reason is that he had to hand over everything he has accomplished to strangers, losing whatever control he would have gathered in his lifetime. Solomon displays a bitter reaction to the logical conclusion that in a world where there is nothing to consider after death, at the end point of our human existence, at the end of the day, All your hard work and accomplishments, as good as they are, are simply inheritances at best. Of course, inheritances can be helpful for the next generation, but we're talking about yourself. What about you? You can no longer build on what you tried so hard to lay the foundation of in your human experience because simply you are dead and gone, ashes in the wind. Even inheritances are not meaningful in themselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 15 to 17 states, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. And so everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All in their days, they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Work and wealth in themselves cannot give you contentment in life. You toil and you spend, looking forward to a future where you can say, Aha, this is the purpose of my life. And this never happens because work in itself is a hardship to endure. Let's be honest, it's hard. And wealth in itself is still just a tool. Unless you find great pleasure in looking at stacks and stacks of money. Maybe some do. But even then, your joy is temporary and fades away into the scope of human history. At best, you should really only think that work and wealth are means to something you have yet to grasp. You've not grasped contentedness. They are meaningless in themselves. (sighs) I've just missed my page. (laughs) Yes. Solomon, the grand accomplisher of all things successful in Israelite history, and one of the wealthiest man, men on earth, who dare to record his indulgences in the Bible, say in his span of human experience under the sun, in a world that is finite, limited, that material pleasures and achievements to be considered by themselves are ultimately meaningless in the perspective of matters under the sun. A world where all ends with death and God is irrelevant. They exist as temporary delight, yet ultimately point towards something you wish you could grasp forever. Even Solomon, with all his incredible wealth and indulgence, could not lie to himself. A life fueled by temporary delight is meaningless in the end. Of course, throughout this entire time, there is this sense of twisted logic, of something that is not quite right. After all, as Christians, we cannot really commit to the idea that everything we've ever done or obtained is meaningless, or else we should just give up to yourself with despair. And that is fine, because we must remember that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is working off of observing a world where God is not even being considered. If God does not matter then all that Solomon has observed so far are declared to be temporarily delightful, but meaningless in the scope of eternity. However, we can't celebrate just yet and throw everything that was said to the back of our minds because the thought of everything in Ecclesiastes does not apply to us. It does in a much stricter way. Nothing has changed, and Solomon's logic is still undeniable. At the end of it all, your actions and circumstances do not mean very much to the majority of the world in terms of lasting impact. Not to others, not to your sense of eternal satisfaction. Perhaps only occasionally to your friends and family but no lasting joy which we can build on is gained. Even the happiness of eating some really great food the day before will fade from your memory. If your joy in life was to experience the flavor of great food, then your joy in life fades away just as fast as your memory overwritten by human forgetfulness. How should we reconcile the concept of contentedness and the meaning of life with the existence of God? And it's not good enough to simply consider oh, God exists so now my job gives me true satisfaction or, or um, I acknowledged that God exists and matters in some way. So therefore my wallet has somehow taken on a bit more spiritual meaning in my life. it, it doesn't work that way. No, we have to make it explicit. Um, for people of the faith, the purpose of life is not centered around your personal happiness, but it's centered around knowing God. To know God, is not simply to know about the existence of a God, but to be thoughtful of his character and ways to walk with God and to fear God. We realize that our existence is shackled, limited, imprisoned by our human nature. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's observation that a focus on human values, on the human experience, will show that everything we can see or do will not last. The moment we centered the world around us, our human comforts, joys, and accomplishments is the moment we lost sight of eternity. All sense of contentedness that remains is human. A dying imitation that flares up For a moment before disappearing in the wind. The moment our primary objective is to fulfill ourselves without concerning ourselves with God is the moment we're trying to find meaning and satisfaction that will not last. But God is eternal, and seeing all things with an eternal perspective. The last two verses of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14 states, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of, man- of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. If you truly know God, you will naturally fear him, and keep his commands. For you know what he has done and can do. Because God judges every deed, including every hidden thing. He cares for every little thing we go through. In the light of knowing we have a God who cares, really cares about everything, then we experience a great revolution in the meaning of life. He declares that he cares about what we do, even though we might have forgotten and whatever we do might have disappeared into rivers of time. As Christians, we often focus on the harsher parts of scripture that talk about eternal judgment. But there is one benefit we need to remember. We have a judge who declares that every deed we have done is weighted with eternity, whether good or evil, hidden or apparent. In a world with God, eternal accountability is now in session for everything we do. Every accomplishment, every material pleasure we experience in life is declared to be eternally meaningful under God's eyes. What we considered through the eyes of the world, under the sun, where all things end at death, where all things are not really worth considering, truly meaningless and full of vanity, becomes transformed by the very knowledge that the God who sees is seeing you now in the context of a forever. We know an eternal God who cares about all that you do. And we must consider everything we experience carefully. This is no longer a one time concept of contentedness that Solomon did as an experiment. In Proverbs chapter 19, verses, well, verse 23, Solomon continues with this conclusion The fear of the Lord leads to life then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Briefly, let's consider an example in the New Testament. Apostle Paul once wrote a letter to the Philippians when he was imprisoned by the Romans. While in a Roman prison, Paul wrote to the Philippian church to encourage them in affection and appreciation for supporting him throughout his entire ministry. Philippians chapter 4, chapter 4, verses. 4 to 10 states, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renew your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Knowing God is Paul's secret to contentedness, allowing him to rejoice even while in chains. The peace of God and finding contentedness in God is not a theoretical matter to Paul. Even in a desperate situation, without food, friends, or a home, Paul learned that he could be content through all circumstances through Jesus Christ. For Christians, our focus on contentedness has nothing to do with focusing on our personal happiness. We care about eternity, holding on to a limitless joy that gives meaning to all that we do, even as we suffer in this world. This is true of Old Testament matters, as we can see in Solomon. And this is true of New Testament circumstances, as we can see in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this is true even today. Even if our actions and circumstances feel meaningless to ourselves in times of existential dread, in terms of seeing ourselves as meaningless specks in the great river of human history... God considers the actions of these specs as something to be carefully observed and judged. Ecclesiastes is complicated as a book. However, it deals with some of the most important questions in our lives. The answer is not to focus on ourselves and to come to terms with our limitations as humans. While a humbling reminder we must continue to know God Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.